Pyramid of Giza, the Hanging Gardens of Babylon, the Statue of Zeus, the Temple of Artemis, the Mausoleum of Halicarnassus, the Colossus of Rhodes, the Pharaohs of Alexandria. These are the seven wonders of the ancient world. These landmarks were iconic in every sense of the word. However, most of these symbols were lost to the proverbial sands of time. of the millennium there was a contest hosted by a swiss foundation to name the modern seven wonders of the world and of the thousands upon thousands of submissions the world selected the great wall of china the ancient city of petra shizim itza machu picchu christ the redeemer and the Colosseum in rome and of course the taj mahal all worthy successors and legendary in their own right. But then there was an idea, a challenge, a conversation. guys uncensored this is episode 159 recorded on the very rare wednesday night november the 9th 2022 that is guy that is tim i am bub on tonight's episode we take up the mantle we are going to unveil our seven wonders of walt disney world the icons the legends the champions of the most magical place on earth before we do that though we do have to visit Tim in the newsroom. Hey, before we jump into the news, I just gotta we gotta give it up to Bob for that pronunciation of Halicarnassus correct on the first time through. I know I just flubbed it pretty bad there, but uh, Bob, excellent pronunciation on some of these uh, old wonders. Yeah, I gotta tell you, I, I really was gonna ask Drew if he wanted to come back to do that part. Uh, so a little inside baseball for the fans. Um, we did have to re-record one of these sections of the intro. Had we brought back Drew to do this, uh, we would be here well into the early morning hours. And I don't know about you guys, but I have work tomorrow uh, before the long weekend, and uh, I don't want to do that. So in the spirit of getting things done quickly, a couple short news quick hits this week. Ocker Shoes has finally reopened at Epcot. Uh, dinner only. The posted hours are, I believe, 2.45 till 8 p.m. for taking reservations. So if you want to get a late lunch, you can get in there on that first seating. But this does bring another princess character dining option in and one that is much, much more attainable than uh, Cinderella's Royal Table. And uh, I think I've heard from a lot of people the food here is pretty good. Uh, it's some Scandinavian themed lightly takes on uh, a medieval banquet food, you know, carved meats, your stuffings, your your side dishes, your macaroni and cheeses, that sort of thing. 
Uh, so if you are interested in Princess Dining but not into the rat race of trying to get Royal Table, Akershoots is now available for you at Epcot in the Norway Pavilion. Uh, staying on the dining theme, for the first time in a long, long time, as long as I can remember, same-day ADR cancellation is now available, and that is available right in the app as well as over the phone. Uh, ADRs are still harder to get than they were pre-pandemic, with still not all the restaurants at 100% or even all open. So this is just going to not only make it less punitive for people who need to cancel their reservations, not needing to give that full 24 hours in advance, but also make those people on those uh, virtual wait lists and trying to snipe same day reservations in the app to have a lot better chances of getting a primo ADR that somebody doesn't want or is only going to go to out obligation because they missed their cancellation window. So that is a good change all around, in my opinion. And as is the tradition in Walt Disney World and Disneyland, after Halloween starts in the hot dog days of summer and continues on into November, it has finally ended, and we skip right over Thanksgiving. Christmas festivities, or I should say holiday festivities, uh, there is a little bit more Hanukkah representation in the parks than there has been in the past in the way of merch in some booths at Epcot and California Adventure. Uh, than there has been in the past, but that is all fully underway with the Christmas party at the Magic Kingdom in full swing. Uh, the first party was actually tonight as we are recording this. Uh, it is up in the air if tomorrow's will happen with the oncoming storm that Florida is bracing for. But that's what happens when you start your holidays during the end of hurricane season. Uh, looks like those Christmas party tickets are selling at a very brisk pace. So if that is something that interests you on a upcoming trip in this holiday season, make sure you hit up your travel professional like Jordana Izzo at Travelmation and uh, snag those quick because they're going fast. Uh, last story, kind of a bad one. Uh, Disney had their er quarterly earnings call and they missed their earnings target by $1.6 billion. Uh, this was mostly attributed to continued losses in streaming, which of course were expected. Streaming was never uh, forecasted to be profitable before 2024. Uh, also, a weak box office year for everyone, but especially Disney didn't really have any mega hits this year outside of a couple Marvel things. And of course, Lightyear was a big flop. Uh, a lot of stuff that was going to go to theaters ended up straight to Disney+. Plus. Uh, Disney stock did plummet along with the rest of the Dow to its lowest point in over two and a half years so uh, not looking great, but I think, uh, in my opinion at least, this is probably something Disney will recover from. Uh, that said, things are not looking great on the financial side right now, though it was noted that Chapek's strategy of offering less for more money in the parks, at least on paper, seems to be a smashing success with parks, resorts, and the cruise line posting their highest earnings Ever. Well, that's all the news that's fit to talk about. So on to the main event, the seven wonders of Walt Disney World. Bob, what does that mean? 
Tim, I'm not even sure what this means. I, I don't even know how we came to this topic tonight. It, it was one of those things where we spitball a lot of ideas, where we throw a lot of things at each other. And I think we're always constantly trying to come up with something different that we haven't done before. Uh, a little bit of a sidebar. It's very difficult to do that with, with Guy because he's got ideas he wants to do that maybe I recorded with Andrew and Jay or certainly Tim that we recorded with Jordana and Drew. So it's tough when we say, when we workshop ideas, it, it's very difficult to find that niche. And I think we will, in fact, there's we kicked around a ton of ideas in the last couple of weeks for how to keep it fresh. That's where we got the the nine whatever the hell we call it, the, 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 the nine things about or whatever it is. This is Seven Wonders of the World, not related, but something I really got to thinking about was I found an article from, I, I want to say it was like 2015 or, or, or beyond that, uh, where there was a discussion that Disney was like the eighth modern wonder of the world. And it's one of those things where I said, well, if Disney World is the eighth modern wonder of the world what are the wonders of walt disney world and we talked about it and and i me and guy immediately had lists ready to go and and tim being i think much more on the analytical side of things had a list but he took a little more time to formulate it or he was just busy at work and didn't respond as quickly as me and guy did i'm not sure which it is let's just go with with he was more analytical about it but guy our lists weren't too different when we initially were were workshopping this idea, yeah, I would say I would say the top five are just very obvious, and then from there it gets more and more subjective to right. kind of what is important to you, right? And, and I think we did try to stay away from individual attractions. We didn't completely stay away from individual attractions, um, I, but we were pretty universal, Tim. It was. Pretty. It was. It was the least stressful conversation we've ever had via Discord when referring to an episode in a list form. No, I, I think there was. I think six, five or six were an immediate agreed upon across all three of us, and then it was a matter of figuring out the last two or three from a pool of four. So yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, I think we all kind of arrived in the same place. Uh, if you have other ideas about this, guys, definitely let us know either on the Discord or, or in the Facebook mm-hmm. group. We'd love to hear your take on what you think the seven wonders of Walt Disney World are. Now, see, I will say, just full disclosure, I find it remarkable that the three of us were able to do this without a spreadsheet of silliness, without uh, shots being fired, without, you know, friendships being severed. Because I feel like every list that we've ever done Tim, whether it's you front-loading Hawkeye or me arguing to the death that the Little Mermaid is one of the best rides in Walt Disney World, like it, it's just it's it's there's always one thing that we've consistently like bashed heads about Andrew and his love of I, I some weird stuff, but I, I digress. You know what? The bird dogging is done. The list is complete. Let's go. This is no. This isn't like number one is the best or anything. This is just the seven. Wonders of Walt Disney World, what we consider the things that make Walt Disney World what it is. I I don't think there's any place better to start. And the first one we are cheating on, we've agreed that we are cheating on this, are the park icons. And when we think of park icons, obviously Cinderella Castle, 
obviously Spaceship Earth and obviously the Tree of Life. The first headache that we had was deciding what was the true icon of Hollywood Studios right now. Guys, I don't think I don't think Disney has an answer nailed down on this. Correct. If we're being totally honest, I, I think the Imagineers often dodge this question uh, when asked by the press and the enthusiast media. Um, and I think that it, it is something that uh, Hollywood Studios has struggled with kind of from the start. Now, Guy, there was one that me and you had workshopped the entirety of what we we're going to talk about, why we were going to talk about it. And it's a thing we've never actually done its own episode on. And let's just get that one out of the way first, guy. It's clearly what are we talking about as the one that didn't make the cut of the park icons. Uh, yeah, so with that, it was the Tower of Terror, which for right. me, um, it could go both ways. Because when I think about the parks, I think about where am I going to take my photo with my family? And at Epcot, it's obvious. At Magic Kingdom, it's obvious. Animal Kingdom, it's obvious. At Epcot... I've, I'm excuse me at Hollywood Studios. I've never not taken a picture with my family in front of Groman's Chinese Theater and the Hollywood Tower of Terror. So right. it really, it really makes it a difficult choice for us. Um, I think it was easier to kind of go with the theater over the tower because you know the tower's a ride, and then that I mean Spaceship Earth's a ride. Technically. <laughs> Technically, um, uh, the, the show Tree is at uh, Tree of Life <laughs> as well. So my whole argument's falling apart here. But um, for me, it was I thought the theater is just more of an icon that really more people. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe I'm losing. Maybe I'm convincing myself no, that I was wrong this see, whole time. No, guy, I, I completely agree with you. And until 16 minutes ago, when Tim dropped the water tower on us randomly, yeah. I, I will say to me, the icon of. Hollywood Studios, as it is currently constituted, despite the Great Movie Ride not being in that building anymore, which was the centerpiece attraction of that, discounting the 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 Backlot Tour, which featured the Water Tower, the Earful Tower, as it were. It, Hollywood Studios, to me, is still the Chinese theater, still Grandma's Chinese theater. It's a full-scale replica. They use the original blueprints. It, it is... The fact that they got that built as quickly as they did, and this park as quickly as it did, when now we're sitting on alert 18 minutes uh, into the recording, we are now looking at our first reference to how long Tron has taken to build. They got this park built in less time than it took them to build Tron, which is an off-the-shelf ride. But the Chinese theater is the spirit of Hollywood Studios to me. Tim, I'm interested to hear your take on the Earful Tower being here, because that truly was the pencils, the pens... The, the gear, the, the, the shirts had, the Earful Tower hat. So that was, you're absolutely right, the icon of that park. No, I mean, it definitely was their choice for the icon, but it got demolished with the Backlot Tour, so it couldn't continue to be. And, and as far as icons gone, that, that's the identity, basis of the identity crisis ever since. Um, I do think Chinese theater kind of wins out in my heart, if only because it is the grand reveal Mm -hmm. As you walk down the main thoroughfare past the entrance of um, Hollywood Studios uh, to see Tower of Terror, you kind of have to make a turn and look. And it's purposefully uh, not fully revealed as the, the the kind of horrific visage that the ride actually is about and more blends into the scenery as a iconic part of old Hollywood coming up over the Brown Derby and uh, Fairfax and all that stuff. Uh, but yeah, I mean, the Chinese theater is, is kind of the de facto icon here, 
Mm-hmm. Although the merch all now includes Tower of Terror as the uh, the icon for all the 50th merch and all the modern uh, merch that shows all the icons. Though I think we're spending a ton of time on what we have all agreed is the the weakest, weakest. No, in this I, category. I agree. And Tim, I'm going to tell you, I think the least interesting architecturally of the three, uh, of the four, and the least interesting, if you take it as a singular place... Is the castle on Main Street in the castle welcoming you to Fantasyland? It is the million dollar shot. If we're going to include Main Street, my theory's a little bit different on it. But as a structure, Tree of Life and, and Spaceship Earth are are far more architecturally interesting. They are far more architecturally significant than the cast than Cinderella's castle. And I'm interested to see if I'm just taking cheap heat here and saying that Cinderella Castle is the least interesting architecturally of the four. No, I hate to just agree with you here, but I kind of got to, because when you are going down Main Street, I think that adds so much more to it than just the castle itself. Um, I mean, obviously, it is the biggest icon without a shadow of a doubt. I mean, in the world. Uh, Yeah, but it's kind of like... It's like Hulk Hogan, you know, it, it's a great champion, but I mean, probably right. not the best worker of the group. Hey, Tim? Yeah, I mean, no argument here. Um, it, it, there's there's nothing particularly unique about it. It's an idealized version of a, a German style medieval castle. Um, the the big the big selling point on it is is the way it is revealed after walking mm-hmm. down a yeah. uh, stereotypical idealized version of uh, a 1920s any town USA Main Street and then right. boom smack there's a castle that kind of rises up and appears due to the uh, architectural design and and landscape design of Magic Kingdom but yeah I mean it's a Disney castle park it has a castle it, it it's not really um, shattering anybody's perception of, of what could be at a theme park and what could cause a sense of wonder at a theme park. Right. I mean, it is here by definition as the icon of the property and admittedly probably the most one of, if not the most photographed spot in the entire world. So I, I just, it had to be here. It, it, it needed to be included, but but guy main street USA just makes so much more, of a of a grand entrance into the castle ironically people do take for granted that the castle technically is part of Fantasyland. it is not part of main street usa for those of you that are looking to wow your friends with obvious trivia and on your next trip the castle is technically the welcome gate to Fantasyland. it is not a part of main street usa let's go to the next one guys spaceship earth magnificent geodesic sphere the the we could spend hours and i think we have talking about the rain gutter system they have in this thing just structurally how interesting it is if if you took it in if you cut it in half it's basically a table in there the, the way the platforms are set up it it is visually if you're into that probably the most interesting of them again i i am partial to tree of life we'll get there in a second but spaceship earth Especially with the new fountain, the new the removal of the monoliths in front of it, the the kind of greenery, the 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 updated entryway to the Epcot. fiber optic light show yeah, that has been added just, to it. Spaceship Earth is the most dynamic of these, in my opinion. I, I just think they did a great job. The the the, the Epcot lights, that the, the dream lights are fantastic. There just isn't too much to nitpick about the structure 
of Spaceship Earth. Guy, am I overselling Spaceship Earth? Uh, no, I think you're underselling it, honestly. I think it's got one of the most iconic rides in it. Um, that's certainly more than you can say for any of the others, although, like you will say, uh, we do get a good show in the Tree of Life. Um, it's just beautiful. It's Again, it's one of those most photographed, recognizable things um, that Disney offers. I think you could show anyone's grandmother a picture of the Epcot ball, and that's exactly what they'll call it. That's the Epcot ball, you know? Right. So definitely iconic for sure. Now, Tim, I know you're a sucker for Epcot, and, I, and it's so... It, this has got to be one that you you are a big fan of. Oh yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to like say all the same things as you, but the I'm a huge fan of the architecture, huge fan of the design, huge fan of how much this is the identity of Epcot, and Epcot is it. Um, even before all the enhancements, talk about common photographs. I think everyone who has been to Disney, especially if they're not a stereotypical Disney fan, has taken that photograph of the uh, spaceship Earth at night with the vaporwave lighting on it and um, the either the the camera shop or the lockers uh, or the bathroom side uh, buildings that kind of ring it mm -hmm. with the tree. It's just such an iconic uh, architectural slash landscape shot that that people just love to take that photograph. And that has all been just so greatly enhanced by the new fountain, by the dream lights by the new sound that goes with the dream lights. Uh, absolutely stunning, unique, not something, uh, you know, there's a handful of these geodesic dome buildings that are full spheres throughout the entire world. And this is the largest by far, I believe. Most of them are, you know, a eighth to a quarter of this size in, in like botanical gardens in, in, in Europe or Asia. Um, but yeah, I mean, this kind of stands alone. Uh, in my opinion, certainly the most wondrous of these except maybe the last one we're going to talk about yeah tim listen if you if you could have told me in 1994 1995 and i i would have been 10 or 11 years old so i would have believed anything that the tree of life as it was constituted was an upside down oil rig and i would have said well what 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 an upside down what are you talking about that that is the tree of life if and i'm going basic here and i'm gonna kind of defer to tim and let tim take the lead in the tree of life here because i feel like i've led a lot of this with these other three so tim the tree of life to me is the icon to be all icons but but what about the tree of life is so special well first of all all these other icons you see pretty immediately after the first couple steps first couple hundred feet into a park the Tree of Life, its reveal is so much more dramatic because it's entirely obscured from the outside of the park, from the entrance to the park, from the entrance way to the park. You kind of have to go through what, for me, has always reminded me of a regular zoo entrance, basically. You're going in, you're seeing some uh, sparsely populated animal displays. This is no different than what you'd see at the San Diego or the Bronx Zoo, any big Class A zoo in America. But once you get through there, all of a sudden, it's just like, wham, this huge open space with the biggest tree you've ever seen. And that alone is extremely impressive. And then you get closer to the tree and what the tree has going for it that none of these other things have going for them is this thing is really the first big showstopper of a new generation of Imagineers. And this thing has so much more detail. There are 
thousands, I believe actually tens of thousands of sculpted in details of animals. The, the bark of the tree, what appears to be bark, even when you're pretty close to it, is not bark and roots. It, it's the tree of life is made up of thousands and thousands of individual sculptures of animals. And, and I mean, I've been to Animal Kingdom more times than I can count. And I don't think I've probably even seen one-tenth of everything that is on the Tree of Life up close. I mean, really, the only ones that you see quite a bit are the ones that are in the queue for um, Tough to be a Bug. But you, you, if you wind around that lesser-used path on the backside of it or or go up front to um, the, the, the Peacock exhibit and look, there is just so much incredible detail and awe-inspiring stuff going on with this tree. And... It, it it is kind of less of an architectural feat uh, than the other um, other icons, but it it's not architecture as much as it is sculpture in and of itself. Guy, what do it's you think? It's a work of art. It's a work of art, guy. Yeah, for sure. So I mean, honestly, if you had to stare at other one of the other three icons for five minutes, uh, that would eventually be torture. You could stare at the tree of life for an hour and not see everything and be interested the whole time. And I think it's just one of the most unique things that the parks have to offer. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Now, people argue that, you know, Kilimanjaro Safari, uh, not Kilimanjaro, Exhibition Everest, you know, that iconic landscape now, and even some of the, the, the Valley of Moara there over in Pandora are kind of taking away from the Tree of Life. To me, I don't find that to be the case. The Tree of Life, to me, stands alone. It's probably... The, the single greatest of the park icons. But the tour moves on. We are going to stay in Animal Kingdom, and we are going to go to one that me and Guy remarkably agreed on instantly on our short list. So, Guy, where are we going next? Uh, so the next place we're going to is Kilimanjaro Safari. Um, I personally don't think of it as a ride. I think of it more as a tour, which is weird. Uh, but it's definitely something that you've... no one. I don't think anyone's ever gone to Animal Kingdom and not gone on this unless they're, you know, they have a reason not to. They have a really, really small child or they're pregnant. Uh, this is, I think, the most unskippable attraction in all of Disney. Uh, it really, it. what are you going to Animal Kingdom for if you're not going to check this out? Um, Tim, what do you think about that? I, I mean, it, it's an incredible feat. I actually think them reducing the amount, and I know we've touched on this before, but reducing the amount of kind of kayfabe thieving, the poacher story, the warden story, and just letting it really uh, bask in its own majesty and, and, and accomplishment. I mean, the Imagineers and, and biologists and zoologists worked together to build a drive-through safari that a guided drive-through safari that has like five or six completely different biomes, animals from every continent, and it's it, it's just incredible that that this it, it's larger than the entirety of the Magic Kingdom. This one attraction, and and you're right, it's completely unskippable. It, it's the heartbeat of Animal Kingdom, and uh, it it has done so much for people's understanding of like what a a truly unique theme park can be. It, it's it's truly the Disney difference, I think, now on property in Florida. This is not something anywhere else really could pull off. 
Yeah, I mean, let's be honest. This this attraction, I, I think I read somewhere, was is twenty percent of the total area of Animal Kingdom itself. It's one hundred and ten acres uh, by itself. It is it is massive. And guy, I, you said it's unskippable. I, I'm going to go one further. When we do our when we routinely argue about our top ten rides, this routinely to me top one or two, depending on how I'm feeling on the day. And it's it's always one or two. That is it. Um, I think rewritability. I think Tim, the best thing they ever did was get rid of the the. You have the majesty of these animals, these these creatures that you're you're never going to see in a copy in most places. It, and then you have this this little red, which is borderline. They stole it from the Jungle Cruise at the like. It just. I understand what they were trying to do with the, the anti-poaching element of it. it. It actually makes a ton of sense. But you had something that didn't need the bells and whistles. This this speaks for itself, this attraction. The, the nighttime safari is great. And the add-on Wild Africa Trek, I can't say enough good things about Kilimanjaro Safari and, and the entirety of, of Africa or Harambe Village in general. But... For me, this is easily a, a one of the wonders of the world. If you go to Animal Kingdom, like both of my co-hosts said, and you don't go on Kilimanjaro Safari, I, I don't know what to tell you at this point. You are missing one of the pinnacle experiences at Walt Disney World. That's it. Tim, the next one we're going to start with you, because it's one that you brought to the table, not one me and Guy really kicked around. And this would fall under one much more of a, a, much more of a modern uh, Marvel to to the to the wonders of the world and uh, listen uh, tim go ahead because i i you're ready yeah, for it this is by far and away the newest uh entry on this list but star wars galaxy's edge um i mean we all know disney fans all know that there were things that were promised for this that were never delivered but even with that said what disney was able to create is so complete and so amazing i mean he, gets thrown around in the marketing for Star Wars Galaxy's Edge. It certainly gets thrown around now that Star Cruiser is live, but it is a land in a theme park that lets you live your Star Wars story. And I mean, this is the only theme park land outside of maybe Tokyo Disney Sea where you can kind of just hang out in one land of a theme park all day if you're a fan of the material and just take in the details and every single cast member who is there is in character and won't break character for anything. It has its own language, its own cast member costumes, its own in-universe story. It is literally a theme park land that is in the greater canon of the most important movie franchise in Western history. And all of that rolled together is just wonder incarnate. Even if you're not a Star Wars fan, if you walk through Galaxy's Edge and you spend time in Galaxy's Edge and you ride Rise of the Resistance, like you are going to, even if you don't care about Star Wars or like Star Wars, realize that it is something special. Even if it's not for you, it is by definition special because it's so immersive and, and it carries such weight and it it's so isolating from the quote-unquote real world, whereas the rest of Hollywood Studios of all the other parks has the most, being a studio park, real world in it. 
you know, the most buildings that you'll see, buildings that look like that anywhere else. Certainly if you are in Hollywood or uh, Nashville or Montreal, any of these places where they produce films all the time, you'll see studio buildings and lots and warehouses that look like the buildings in uh, Hollywood studios. But once you're passed through those designated entryways of Galaxy's Edge, you are transported to Batu and you are living a Star Wars story. You are eating Star Wars food. You are not buying Star Wars souvenirs. You are buying souvenirs from your trip to Batu that fit in universe. And I mean, I think it's just such an incredible feat the Imagineers pulled off. The beta test was for this was definitely Pandora and Animal Kingdom. And this takes those lessons learned and, and really does it at scale. Yeah, no, Tim, listen, I agree with you 100%. Listen, I, I'm still one of those, one of the very few that have not been down there with Galaxy's Edge. But I, for me, I, I can't, I love the design idea of, it, it kind of gives you the 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 effort, you not the effort, the, the method you get at Magic Kingdom when you walk in, underneath the train tracks and kind of turn the corner into main street USA. I do like the idea of the reveal at star Wars being magical in that sense where it is neatly separated from the park, the rest of the park. And it is the most immersive they've ever done. Listen, we love Pandora on this podcast. We've talked, we talk about Pandora quite a bit. Everything I've seen with galaxy's edge, like you said, turns that to 11 and I wouldn't be surprised, and hear me out, we're going to throw back to our first one, that maybe eventually the Black Spire Outpost, some of its landscapes become part of the quote-unquote identity or the 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 icon of this park. Because Galaxy Edge is going nowhere, and it's only going to, I think, expand eventually into uh, kind of where into the Muppet Courtyard a little bit or behind it where Mama, where Mama Melrose is. So I think there's just... Something about Star Wars, like you said, it being the most important film franchise in the Western Hemisphere or Western civilization history. It just it works in so many different ways. It's just too bad that the Galactic Star Cruiser didn't work out the same way. Which is honestly funny because you, we everyone kind of talks about the Galactic Star Cruiser as this failed experiment. And it's just like, what other land in any of the parks could ever have a hotel that would be almost at capacity all the time. And when it's at 80%, it's considered a gigantic failure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those expectations would not be hung on anything that wasn't Star Wars related and wasn't a premium continuation of this immersive experience. I mean, I love Pirates of the Caribbean. I go on that ride first every single time I step into Magic Kingdom. I would never in a million years stay at a pirate room at Caribbean Beach for $240 a night, let alone shell out two grand for the kind of immersive experience that you get with Star Cruiser. And I mean, honestly, I think it's a big win and eventually they're going to have to update things. But it really is, um, you know, it really is a feather in the cap for this land. Um, You don't have to be a Star Wars fan to just hang out for 30 minutes and just go. I get it. You know, I get why the people that are super passionate about it are that passionate about it. It's I mean, it's just beautiful to be in there. This guy throwing out Iger era prices for his 
for his pirate room at the Caribbean Beach, two hundred forty dollars. Hasn't been two hundred forty dollars in like ten years now. Those those rooms easily eclipse like three bills now. It's unbelievable to me, and they're junk. I think they actually replaced a bunch of this they're, stuff. They're getting they rid recently? of them, yeah. Yeah, so it is crazy. But again, there's a perfect example of what Tim was talking about. We talk about Star Wars, and then you bring pirates into the conversation. Nothing was bigger than Curse of the Black Pearl, Dead Man's Chest, and that world then. Those movies did billions of dollars in box office when they came out. And and they don't hold... Jack Sparrow, the character, basically because of Johnny Depp, is still in the lexicon and is still one of those that is kind of minted as one of those film characters you'll always remember... But the rest of those movies are inherently forgettable, even if I enjoy them. They're inherently just whatever. They're action-adventure movies set in the Caribbean. So it is funny to see Star Wars, which is approaching just past you know almost 60 years of relevancy, and it's not going away anytime soon if you look at what's coming on Disney Plus or even the theaters. So Star Wars Galaxy's Edge is here to stay. But again, the tour moves on. To our next one, which again, we're kind of cheating on this one too, boys. Uh, But we'll explain that. So to me, this one was very near and dear to my heart because of what it meant in 1971. I, I think you have to have a conversation about transportation in general and specifically about the monorail system that Disney has at their disposal. And some will say, most on this podcast would say, that there's nothing in more dire need of a refurb than the monorail and the monorail trains. We need them. Mr. Chapek, if you're listening, I know that you listen to our show, invest some money that you now don't have because your stock took 12% hit today to in fact, give us new monorail trains, go to Bombardier or whoever it needs to be and get us new trains for the monorail. But this conversation did start with two things It's this one and the next one. So the monorails and the monorail resorts we wanted to include. There was some discussion, guys really pushing the Grand Floridian uh, agenda on us now that he's a DVC member there. Um, And I am uh, anti-living in a a morgue, and that's what the Grand Floridian lobby is. It it smells of formaldehyde. Prove me wrong. Um, Tim obviously is a sucker for the Polynesian, and I... I love the Polynesian and just for its historical significance of the Beatles breakup, it deserves to be on the list. I mean, I I just, the the way the contemporary fits with the monorail and the way the contemporary was constructed, how that kind of modular construction was going to change the way we built big cities and we built apartment complexes. It didn't really pan out that way, but what the contemporary and the monorail aspired to when they were built is a reason for me to put them on this list of wonders of the world. And again, I'm begging you just update the damn trains on the monorail because they, they need them desperately. But guy, give us your two cents on why the grand Floridian should be the monorail resort. That is the seventh wonder of one of the seven wonders of the world. I mean, I just think of all the three and it's, it's tough to argue because they're all great in their own way. Um, I think grand Floridian just, architecturally is the most stunning. Um, I think all the buildings really flow together. I think what kind of gives for me, when I was thinking about it, what edged it out for me is the event space, um, at, you know, Grand Floridian where you can get married. Um, it kind of has the best of all the monorail hotels. And it's just, it's a different, it's a different kind of, it's more of a vacation it feels like 
um, compared to, and I haven't stayed at Poly, so I guess, you know, I can't really say for sure. But between, you know, Contemporary and Grand Floridian, it just, everything was better. And Grand Floridian, excuse me, Contemporary does a lot of things great, but like the pools are terrible at Contemporary. They might have the worst pools on all the resorts. Um, I don't know, Grand Floridian just seemed, it just makes every other place feel like pop century. <laughs> you know, so I hate God's waiting, God's waiting room in God's waiting room. Got it. Understood. Point yep. taken. I don't actually have a problem with the Grand Floridian. I just, again, played the adversarial part of this relationship tonight. I do think the Grand Floridian, you're absolutely right. The contemporary pools suck. That might be the worst pool on property, except for the, the days in down on, uh, on, on, on I 80. Um, so Timothy, I don't know if there's anything on this podcast that you more passionately defend than the Polynesian. There's some things that you do, but you, oh, you we're, we're going to get to one later in this list. I, I'm very aware. That's why I said almost, almost that you almost defend as passionately as this, but give me a reason why the poly. And again, I think all three and the monorail itself are worthy of being on the list. So that's why we did the monorail and the monorail loop. Why should it be the Polynesian? I mean, I think it's, I think it's, all of this combined a little bit less the Grand Floridian. I mean, the monorail itself is a wonder because at the time it was supposed to be the future of public transportation. That really hasn't borne out. Actually, if you look at monorails worldwide, including Disney uh, monorail, it is the single most expensive infrastructure per mile of any mode of transportation that has ever existed on planet Earth. Uh, monorails are just, it ain't it. Um, that said, the monorail re- itself, the promise it, it it represented and the just the uncommonness of that as a mode of transportation and its expansion so far past the monorail in Disneyland um, it, it is worthy of, of spot on the list. The monorail resorts, the idea that you're staying at luxury hotels that are serviced by this futuristic and wonderful transportation system. They deserve to be on it. I mean, the Polynesian in in a world, especially at the time it was built, Polynesian pop was king. Polynesian palaces, especially up here in New England, you know, these fanciful Polynesian uh, inspired restaurants that served uh, Americanized Chinese food and strong drinks were a cultural staple that really defined that 70s era of uh going out supper club entertainment and the poly is the grandest Polynesian pop palace there ever was. And with most of those kind of having disappeared from America and and the American zeitgeist and kind of replaced with this new Tiki revival that is great, but is really allocated more to trendy mixology bars in, in, in expensive cities, seeing a, a, a huge complex like the Polynesian that really inhabits that architectural spirit that theme that sense of adventure that sense of wonder uh, is just amazing i mean the polynesian is and forever will be my favorite hotel on planet earth uh the contemporary if we're talking about wonder the fact that the monorail passes right through it that aptly named grand canyon concourse don't forget there's also the seven natural wonders of the world which include the grand canyon and the grand canyon concourse really uh lives up to its name when it comes to wonder the fact that you have that cavernous open space that the monorail passes through with 
the all the restaurants and shops there with the Mary Blair Merrill. Just amazing stuff. And then there's the Grand Floridian. I mean, a fake Grand Dame hotel without any legacy. And, um, you know, it's just a, a big, white, expensive hotel that uh, doesn't have the kind of legacy or wonder as the other ones. But it's fancy and the monorail goes to it and it does have a nice wedding pavilion. So I guess it makes the list by default. Hey, that's a beautiful wedding pavilion. Oh, no, absolutely. I I will give him that. (laughs) Although I recently found out you can get married on the bridge that connects France to the rest of the world showcase. And I think after seeing some pictures of that, that is probably the most incredible wedding spot at all of Walt Disney World. Yeah, even as the show's biggest Grand Floridian stand, I would definitely I would take that over Grand Floridian, especially I've seen the weddings at Grand Floridian and it is like it's like fast food. I mean, get them in, get them out. It's it's disgusting. For those of you in New England, it's basically a really fancy rights farm. And it'll hit you like a ton of bricks when you guys get that one later. Tim, I adjusted the list just for you because you've been on fire with this stuff lately right now. I need to know, Tim, there's one place that if we had our other co-host on, Andrew, if we we had him on, this would derail the conversation right now. This This would be the end of the episode. We'd have to finish recording tomorrow night. There is one that me and you, Tim, are in sync with that we tried to kind of... We didn't have to twist Guy's arm. I think we just needed to push a little bit on this one, Tim. It's obviously a place that's very near and dear to mine and your hearts, but much more dear to your heart than it is to mine. So, Tim, what is our next wonder of Walt Disney World? It's the Land Pavilion. I mean, I think this one might not be obvious on its face as the rest of these. Everything we've talked about you know, has a real sense of wonder that kind of strikes you at your core when you see it. You don't need to have an innate understanding of it. You know, these things are wonders and and, and it's not, you don't need any special definition. But I think the Land Pavilion really deserves a place on this list because of everything in all the parks on property. This is the only pavilion where the course of the world has been changed by it. Uh, at the time when Epcot opened, I mean, this this pavilion opened with the park. This was a place and still is to this day where changes in how food is produced for the world have happened. So many different modern farming techniques that are used globally were developed here by scientists working in this public-private partnership between the U.S. Department of Agriculture Um, the foreign countries who are invited to collaborate with them, and Walt Disney World. And that in and of itself is wonderful and amazing, that hydroponic farming, that, you know, nutrient membrane barriers, that, you know, aero farming, all this stuff, uh, gene splicing has been developed here, aquaculture techniques. But also it's wonderful and amazing that this pavilion that has multiple rides in it and the farming that you go through also produces the vast majority of the fish and produce that is served in the world's largest vacation destination. Like that in and of itself is amazing. You don't, I mean, I don't think you'd want to, but you know, you don't go to Six Flags and you know, when you go to the restaurant and get a salad, they're like, yeah, these are fresh microgreens from under the beast. You don't go to, uh, you know, King's Dominion and, you know, order the fish of the day and they, you know, oh, this is a carp we ripped out of the 
fountain by the gift shop. Like it's just unprecedented that this ride that you can go through is, uh, you know, producing tons of food for what has over the last couple decades also become a foodie vacation destination. Uh, and then, I mean, that's just talking about living with the land. There's also every mom's favorite ride Soren there. And um, the the theater that has shown the, the the Lion King show and some other great stuff, plus, you know, the food court and a, a rotating restaurant, which there's not a lot of those left. But I mean, really, I think on the innovations present in living with the land itself, it deserves to be on this list, even if you kind of have to pick at the surface and, and really know a bit more about it to understand why it deserves its spot uh, on this kind of rarefied list that we've made. I think I've got nothing guy. I, I he covered it. I mean, that's everything I would have said. So yeah, he definitely covered all the positives. So, so I'll be the negative one over here. And so we didn't really, uh, like everybody's kind of said earlier, we didn't really fight over this list whatsoever. Uh, my only argument against the land, um, was just that it's the only thing on this list that every single day, thousands and thousands and thousands of park guests don't go to at all. People just don't even, and it's at their loss, I would a thousand percent agree, but people skip this all the time. They go to Epcot and they have no interest on this whole side of the park, which is a mistake, but just I'll give the other negative to it. It's Garden Grill is the absolute worst character dining on property. It's terrible food. Characters, uh, characters are cool. Farmer Mickey, got to give it up for I, Farmer Mickey. Chip and Dale, only thing. And Chip and Dale, but I mean, come on, the it's it's terrible. The I rotating think that's the thing. only thing that Andrew likes about the Land Pavilion is the restaurant there. I I'd have to call him. This, this is a pretty hot take. I have actually not heard a lot of complaints about Garden Grill. I've heard way more complaints about Chef Mickey's. And Hollywood and Vine, which I know is Drew's big favorite, but uh, no, no, that's me. I love Hollywood and Vine. I, I will tell you, I know Tim, you're a big Hollywood and Slime guy. I get it, but Hollywood and Vine with the minis, with, with, with the with the mini seasonal dine, it, it's listen. Crystal Palace is is the best of the character dinings that I routinely go to, in my opinion. I, it is food wise, character wise, with the winning the hundred acre wood characters. The seasonal dine of Hollywood and Vine is not bad. And I know for a while there, mid-aughts, it was awful. It was garbage. Steaming hot garbage on the level of which we see Pizza Rizzo. Oh, all right. All right. So we're going to keep it going. Guy, one that me and you immediately had on the list together were the Utilidors that are under the Magic Kingdom. And I think, again, for, for cheap cheap trivia for people you're technically on the second floor of the magic kingdom when when you pull up and people you know when you notice it it is an incline when you walk up and you walk up to the ticket booths and you walk up to the security checkpoints and you're going underneath the train tracks you are technically on the second level here's what's great about the utilidors and and i know i think all three of us have stuff to say about this so i'll be very brief about what fascinates me about it isn't what some of the stuff tim and guy will talk about to me it is the fact they took Florida Swampland, built a a functional, by all definition, foundation, and it doesn't flood. My basement with a house built like eight years ago floods. And I'm, you know, like my parents' basement floods. It, it, somebody spits in the lawn and my parents have a flooded basement. It's unbelievable. Um, but to me, the Utilidors, the fact that we are on the second level of Magic Kingdom and 
unless you know that the Utilidors exist, you have no idea what happens and you have no idea. And guy, you've been on the tour, I think, right? You've been on the tour. So why don't you give us a little rundown, a little more background on the Utilidors? I know Tim is fascinated at some of the transportation and moving around the park that it, that it does allow as well. Uh, but, but guy, give us a little bit on the Utilidors because it is definitely one of the wonders of Walt Disney World. Uh, absolutely. Though, just the way that they have it set up so you can, um, I mean, the original idea was so that you could get a cast member working at Adventureland and you could get them through the whole park without having to walk through the different lands and kind of be a distraction. Um, when you go on the actual tour, it's, it's the most the most impressive part of the tour, and it's the least impressive part of the tour because it looks just like every single backstage arena spot of any any spot. It's very uh, very typical. Um, another bad thing it's got going for it is uh, on the tour you walk right past the subway, and what you realize when you're down there is that the Utilidor has one of the best restaurants in all of magic kingdom sadly uh but you can't you can't get in there for it uh but for me what makes the utilidor special and this is kind of really weird uh but going up to the keys of the kingdom tour uh in the tour itself just a spoiler here uh they tell a great story about you know roy disney and when walt died and how we finished it um and how when it was his turn to give the speech you know at the opening of the park how he wanted to have mickey mouse there and how Mickey Mouse kind of represents Walt, and that's why Mickey Mouse is present at every single opening. Um, I know personally me, Jordana, everybody on the tour at that point is just sobbing uncontrollably, and I'm certainly not going to give it justice to the story right now, uh, but it's definitely such a cool moment in that tour. It makes the whole tour worth it. Um, It is like if you're down in the Utilidor for 30 minutes, you're really getting that story for 25 minutes of it. It's really quick. They kind of walk you down a long hallway. You see, you know, costuming and all that other stuff. And then they just get you in front of this picture of Roy and Walt. And they tell this really long story. And it is, um, it's definitely uh, a life changing. It's definitely an over overstretch there. Uh, but as far as what you're going to experience at Disney, it is pretty crazy. So, so Tim, it's very funny because this is probably the most utilitarian of the wonders of the world. And obviously, as as Guy has said, it, there's some sentimentality to it when you take the tour. But really, at its core, let's be honest, it's a brilliant way to build a theme park. Is it not? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the fact that... It is what allows the magic to remain unbroken, specifically in the Magic Kingdom. And this is not present at any of the other Disney parks. It makes it so that garbage collection that you never need to see uh, uh, somebody emptying the trash cans into a, a big dumpster on wheels. And even if it's only for a short time, like at all the other parks in Florida where the, the trash is emptied and then it's moved quickly to the closest backstage exit that they can get a large garbage cart through, that doesn't need to happen because all the garbage is moved through hydraulics in our hydraulic tunnels in the utilidors. It also allows for things like space above ground to not have to be used for costuming and employee break rooms and employee lunchrooms and stuff. But also, and, and Guy touched on this, it's kind of a combination of the sentimentality, but this is really 
this incredibly utilitarian thing is what allowed Roy and the original Imagineers to fulfill Walt's legacy really and truly. The whole reason we have Utilidors is the famous story that Walt saw a cowboy in Tomorrowland, in Disneyland, and, and, and couldn't deal with it because it broke the immersion, because it no longer was, you know, Tomorrowland separate from Adventureland because the Adventureland cast members had to walk through Tomorrowland to change shifts. This allows it so that that immersion is never broken and, and the magic, the way Walt originally envisioned it, stays real. So despite being a, a, a set of tunnels that 99% of guests will never see, because the only way a guest sees it is a VIP tour if they ask for that on their VIP tour or the Keys to the Kingdom tour. And most, the vast majority of guests never will do either of those things. So this thing that exists solely to be hidden from guests is an essential wonder in civil engineering in how the park works. This is very similar kind of to, to the land, I guess, in, in that it you do need to reach below the surface and kind of explain it to the average, uh, you know, person at the parks or fan of the parks, but but definitely deserves its spot on this list. And again, some cheap trivia here. Utilidors is short for utility corridors. It literally, that's all it means. So if you want to wow people on that tour, there's a little nugget for you. And we're going to wrap up, guys. We've already made it. I think I'm very proud of our efficiency tonight. Number seven, or not number seven, but the seventh wonder of Walt Disney World is one that all three of us, which is a developing theme here, agreed on 100%. And I'm interested because we didn't talk about why this was a wonder for anybody. And being the generous facilitator that I am, I'm going to start with Guy, then we'll go to Tim, and then I'll tell you why it is for me. It is World Showcase at Epcot as the seventh wonder of Walt Disney World to me. Guy, why is it a, Why is it one of the wonders of the world for you? I think because you can go to each individual country and you're going to run into one of those, uh, I'll call them a mini park icon there. Uh, every land kind of ha- every land, excuse me, every country kind of has their own showcase piece for the most part. Um, I think that's what makes it really unique. And you get, you know, all of them in a quarter mile. Um, speaking with we were saying about the safari and then what we touched on or what I touched on, excuse me, on the land is this isn't something no one ever goes to Epcot and doesn't go through World Showcase. I don't think anyways. Um, it just you get to experience so much different stuff. It's so unique compared to any other theme park in the world. Um, and I just think that it is without question one of the icons of the park. So, Tim, Tim, what makes World Showcase a wonder of the world for you? I'm going to go a little bit more heady and more philosophical on this, I guess. But if there's something we've covered the most on this show, it is the World Showcase. We did an entire series of very long episodes that I'm really proud of on this. So if you want the nuts and bolts of the World Showcase, check those out. That said, uh, Americans who are the largest audience for Walt Disney World still do not travel internationally the way that people in Europe or Asia do, simply because America itself is so large that unless you're going to Canada or Mexico, it's kind of difficult to get to other countries. And what World Showcase does through its use of cultural ambassadors, through the cooperation 
to uh, with the host nations uh, in the building of those pavilions is give a little tiny but super authentic slice of those countries to guests at Walt Disney World that in one day you get to travel to every continent but Australia and experience cultures in a way that you probably haven't before statistically if you're an American. On top of that, and this to me is really the most wondrous thing about World Showcase. At the time World Showcase was built, at the time Epcot opened, the world was not as interconnected a place as it is now. The internet was not widespread. Video calling did not exist. Hell, it was hard to make a long distance phone call inside a country, never mind a foreign phone call. And for the the global community to agree to work together for all these companies or countries directly to sponsor the building of these pavilions at the height of the Cold War and put these differences aside and say, we want our country to be represented at this park that is about the dream of a future community about the future of community, about the future of interconnectedness is really wonderful. That that some of these countries really had to put differences aside to be able to be represented in this showcase of the world together. And the fact that all the countries got to do what they wanted to do with their pavilion in the world showcase and that no pavilion really tries to overshadow the other it's just really amazing and wonderful to me. So, I mean, that that's my argument for the World Showcase being on this list. Yeah, I mean, for me, and it's very much in the vein of what you were saying, I think that at a time where currently in, where we look at attractions being built, some slowly, some not so slowly, a lot of it is flash, bang, in your face. There is something wholly incredible about World Showcase and its aspirations to world community and to intelligence. And in a way that, like you said, no country in World Showcase steps on the toes of another pavilion. It, it, is, it, it legitimately is a, an extrapolated version of one of Walt's singular greatest attractions that he ever built, and it's a small world. And it is a walk-through experience that breathes, that lives, that, like you said, Tim, gives a sense of culture in, and global community that you get exactly zero other places in the world. And I think that's what World Showcase truly is. Epcot itself aspired to ungodly advances in technology and building a global community. World Showcase is that global community. And all the changes going on at Epcot right now to this day, World Showcase remains at its core what it was 40 years ago. And that is why Epcot, and that is why World Showcase is, in my opinion, the most important of the seven wonders that we talked about tonight. And I think what's even more impressive, too, is we kind of all touched on what World Showcase means to us. And not one of us touched on drinking around the world, which is a rite of passage for a lot of people, and the festivals. 
which again is probably individually the biggest drawer of anything on this list. Food and wine, flower and garden, that puts butts in seats. Correct. Tim, Guy, anything else on the Seven Wonders of the World? No, I think I, I stand by our list. I think I think we came up with a great list, and I, I don't think there's any glaring omissions, and I don't think any of these, you know, after talking about it, were, were unworthy of their spawn list. But if, as I said, if listeners have other ideas, definitely let us know in the comments. Well, that is our show for the evening, everybody. We hope you liked it. We hope you enjoyed it. As Tim said, please feel free to reach out with your suggestions. You can reach us at the Disney Guys Uncensored at gmail.com. Um, that's it. Guy, Tim, good seeing you. We'll catch you guys next week. Bye.